Well, what a joy it is to be here tonight with you. Um, I'm always, I'm always grateful to open up the Word of God with this group. I, I love Foundation. I'm very grateful to serve here. Very uh, fortunate to serve alongside with you and with our our shepherd Mark. Um, as you know, I don't have to tell you, Mark is just a wonderful human being. Um, I love Mark Zakevich, and if you know him, you love him too. He does so much for each one of you, for this group that you really don't get to see, that I have the privilege of seeing how much he talks about you, prays for you, he just loves you, trying to think what's best for you to give you Christ and how to help you serve him. Uh, We are very privileged to have a shepherd like Mark. So I hope you know, as he's not here tonight, this Be thankful for for him. Be thankful for him. He does so much for us. And I'm grateful for this opportunity that he's asked me to open up the word of God. So that being said, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the gospel of John. And specifically John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And if you're taking notes, the title of my message is Love on its knees. Love on its knees. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let me just begin by reading the text before us. John chapter 13, 1 through 17. Love on its knees. The Lord of God says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him, given him all things into his hands, and he had come forth from God as going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do do you now, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is no greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, 
you are blessed if you do them. This is the very word of God. May we apply it to our hearts here this evening. It was in the early 1900s. There was an Irish playwright by the name of George Bernard Shaw. And he wrote this about Christianity. He said this, Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. His comment exposes one of the biggest problems for Christians, not living what we profess to believe, not living who we say we are. And nowhere is this problem more evident than our response to Christ's teaching on humility, on servanthood, on love. And many Christians, unfortunately, have failed to take Christ's example. They, they, have, tell, they have failed to take his commands seriously. Uh, one professor says this, when we reflect on the history of the church, are we not bound to confess that she has failed to follow the example of her founder? All too often, she has worn the robes of the ruler, not the apron of the servant. Even in our own day, it can hardly be said that the brand image of the church is of a society united in love for Jesus and devoted to selfless service of others. Pride and selfishness, rather than Christ's commands and principles of of humility and sacrificial loves for others, control what is much of God's work done today. How easy we forget God's command. Uh, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So more than ever before, we need to pray the prayer, the well-known evangelist, 18th century George Whitfield. He prayed this, oh, this self-love, this self-will, Lord Jesus, may you, blessed spirit, purge this out out of all of our hearts. Will you purge this self-will, purge this self-love out of every single one of us? And what we see tonight in our text is our Lord calls us to sacrificially serve one another. He calls us to sacrificially love one another. And we can summarize all these things into one word. Love. And the love that we're talking about here is God's love. It's a love that is supremely expressed in Christ himself, self-sacrificing himself on the cross. The, the New Testament word for love is agape. This is the highest form of love. It is God's self-giving love that is expressed regardless of a person's worth. It's expressed regardless of a, a person's merit. This is a love that is self-giving. And this love, this agape love, is to be the distinguishing mark of every Christian. To be the distinguishing mark of every believer. It is essential to the Christian life. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, does he not? That if we have all the Bible knowledge in the world, if we are the greatest leaders or, or the most successful missionaries, We are nothing if we do not have what? Love. We are nothing. You are just wasting your time. Any Christian who's not operating in this agape love 
is just wasting his or her time. I mean, not only does each person need to express this kind of love, but every local church is to display Christ's supernatural love. This love is to flow out of each member of the body for every other member and for the world to see. The local church is not a business. It's not a social club. It's not a political party. It is the spirit indwelt family of the living God. Is the family of the living God. So just as love is the, the basic element of a successful family, so is love to be the unifying element of the local church. We are known by our love for one another. So let, let me ask you this question. How are you loving? How are you loving at this moment in your life? How are you demonstrating this type of love? How are you demonstrating God's love? This agape love that has been graciously demonstrated to you. What does that look like in your life? Our world's version of love is unashamedly conceited. It is totally self-focused and is manipulative. It is self-seeking, only for the means of self-gratification. In sharp contrast to this self-centered kind of love, biblical love, as an act of sacrificial service, a sacrificial service. It's not an attitude, it's an action. Love always does something. It always does something. Uh, the words used described in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, it does not brag, it's not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, and endures all things. So love is an act of service on your behalf that flows out of your heart of humility. That's what love is. And in our text tonight, Jesus demonstrates this agape love. In our text tonight, Jesus shows us what love on its knees looks like. In our text tonight, Jesus displays for what it means to be people of the towel. He demonstrates what love is. He tells us what a servant looks like. And servanthood is essential to the Christian life. It's essential. And to be a follower of Christ, it means you follow his example by serving others with humility and love. This text tonight, this message is serving like Jesus. This message is about serving like Jesus. So as you walk through this text, if you take your notes, I want to know three important lessons about true servanthood. Three important lessons about true servanthood. And first, I'll give you an outline. And then as we go through the text, I'll give you the lesson as we walk through it. Three important lessons. So if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to know is the motivation. The motivation. Look at verse one. And before we get there, uh, the scene is it's in the upper room. Uh, and it first unfolds, as it folds before us, uh, we see this motivation. And they're in the upper room. And verse one says this, now before the feast of the Passover. And the setting for the scene is, is as Jesus himself was to become the Passover lamb. He is hours before his his death. As religious Jews were pouring into Jerusalem from all over, all over the Middle East, 
Jesus gathered his disciples one more time into the upper room just to have fellowship and just to teach them about himself and give them hope and encouragement, let them know that he still loves them. And he would be crucified 15 to 16 hours later from this moment that we're in. And th- this is the night before he's crucified. This is the night before his death. And verse one continues, Jesus, knowing that this hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus knew perfectly well that his hour had come. The hour for which he had come into this world, the hour for which that he would lay down his life for his people. He knew it well. It would be though that his death, through his death, that Jesus would return to the Father. He returned to where he came from. He returned to God, his Father, the right hand of God, the Father. He knew this. He knew where he was going. He was going back to where he came from. Verse one continues, having loved his own who were in the world. Who were his own here? Well, his own has been given many times in John's gospel. Uh, those who were born of God. Uh, those who have been given to Jesus by the Father. Those for whom Christ was about to die. Those whom Christ gives eternal life. His own are his sheep. They are his own sheep. They are his people. They are the people he is about to die for, the people that he loves. But what's the world here? Well, the world here is the, the human race that despises Jesus, that despises his own people, uh, this world of human beings that rebel against God the Father. Uh, this is a world of human beings that does not know God. This is a world that rejected Christ. And this is a world that hates Christ's followers. So as Jesus is prepared to depart back to the Father, his final acts were consumed with and driven by love for his own. His final acts were consumed and driven by love for his own. So what we see here is the special supreme love which Jesus has for his own, who he saved from this wicked and perishing world. Why does Jesus love his own? Why does Jesus love us? Not because we are lovable, because we are not. Some of us may seem lovable lovable to others, but from a human perspective, that's not true. But from God's perspective, there is nothing, and I mean nothing in every single one of us that makes us desirable to him. There's nothing lovable about us. He is holy. We are unholy. He is just. We are unjust. He is loving, and we are filled with hate in all forms of sin. We are not, we have nothing desirable whatsoever in us, yet he loves us. He loves us. He has not loved you. God has not loved you because of anything you could do for him. You had nothing to offer him. God has not loved you because you loved him first. He he is not merely returning a a favor. He's not returning our love. We have no love to offer him. There is no explanation of why, yet he has chosen us out of his own goodness. He has chosen you out of his own goodness. He has chosen you out of his own mercy to love you. He has chosen 
to love you and call you his own. That's why he loves us. Verse one continues. Look at the end right there. He says, he loved them to the end. To the end. To the end of what? Well, certainly he would love uh, love them to the end of his earthly life. He's about to face death. And he's he's about to just accept all that's about to transpire right before he's about to die. And he never stops loving them to his death. And certainly he will never stop loving uh, the disciples as they face death. But more important than that, he loves them to the end of the ages and beyond. He loves them forever. He loves them to the end. He loves them for eternity. This love of Christ is unending. And this love of Christ is unchanging. This love of Christ is an unconditional love. This is not a end of his love for them nor us. He never stops loving you. He never stops loving you. If you are in him, he loves you to perfection with perfect love. He loves you to perfection with perfect love. Let me just encourage you with this. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now, at this moment, you are his and he is yours forever. Forever. What encouragement for this. Jesus called us vile, wicked, wretched people. He called us out of this world and he would never stop loving us. It's amazing. It's amazing. He would never stop loving you in spite of yourself. He would never stop loving you because of your immaturity. He would never stop loving you in spite of your failures. If you know him, he will never stop loving you. You will always be one of his own. He, you will always be one of his own. This is the love that he has for his own. So what's the motivation? What's the lesson here? What can we learn? Well, the motivation for servanthood is love. That's number one. The motivation for servanthood is love. Christian service begins with love in your heart. It doesn't begin with a towel in your hand. It doesn't matter what you do. If you don't have love in your heart, then what you're doing is just wrong. You need to have the motivation motivation for serving, which is love. The servant's heart is a heart of love. So it begs for the question, does that describe you? Does that describe you? Is your heart, when you serve one another, when you serve others outside of our church, when you serve one another in this room, is your heart expressing a heart of love? Is it expressing a heart of love? If you want to be Christ's servant, if you want to follow him, if you want to grow into this authentic aspect of discipleship, if that's what really is the desire of your soul, you must allow your hearts to deepen and grow in love. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to grow in love? Are you willing to grow in this love, this self sacrificing love. 
Jesus did not forget that he was God. He is truly God and truly man. He did not forget that he was God, yet he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Our Lord and our Savior, our King, he loved to the uttermost. He loved to the best. He loved with perfection. Ask God to fill your hearts with the love of Christ that will move you to serve others. This is the motivation. The motivation of servanthood is love. That's where it starts. So the second thing, if you're taking notes, we see the motivation. Second thing is the model, the model. And and the section here, it really records the acts of, we see is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And it really is a dramatic picture, a dramatic uh, display of serving in love. Look at verse two. During the supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Satan was very hard at work in the last hour of Jesus' life. He he was hard at work at everything before his death. Uh, Judas was now devil-filled, and Satan planted in his heart to betray Christ. He planted in his heart to to betray Christ, become unloyal. But in these moments, in, in this wicked plan against Christ that would soon be carried out, Jesus knew all along that Judas was unconverted. Jesus knew that he would betray him. Jesus knew that Satan entered Judas and that Judas would commit one of the worst betrayals in history. Satan and Jesus were on the same accord about the death. Jesus knew what he was doing. Yet this wicked betrayer, Judas, is still in the room when Jesus began washing the disciples' feet. Jesus knew what was going on. He knew, and he washed his feet too. Would you wash Judas's feet? Would you wash his feet? This service for one who would betray him for money reminds us that we are called to serve. We are not given the right to determine who deserves our service. You are called to serve, but you are not given any right to determine who earns your service. You are to serve everyone. You are to serve everybody. And Jesus knew all of this as he approaches his last hours here on this earth. He knew all of it. Look at verse three. Jesus, knowing that the father had given him all things to his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He he was perfectly aware of his sovereign authority. He was perfectly aware of his divine origin. He was perfectly aware of his eternal destiny. Yet, even with all of his divine majesty, it did not prevent him from washing the disciples' feet. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of heaven and earth. And it did not prevent him from washing the disciples' feet. Isn't it amazing? It's not amazing that a house servant would take a towel, a towel and a basin and wash the 
disciples' feet. That's normal. That's what we expect. That's their job, you could say. But what is astonishing is that the sovereign of the universe, the king of kings, will lower himself to wash the feet of disciples. This is mind-boggling. Never has one so high been stooped down so low. Other people have nearly washed the feet of people before, but never has someone with sovereign authority stooped so low. Never has one with such eternal deity and perfect omniscience lowered himself so much. Never has one with such future glory awaiting him bent this low with such a lowly task. And never has someone so high and so exalted reached down so low. Jesus was at the highest of highs and he reached the lowest of lows to wash the disciples' feet. And even the feet of the one who would betray him. Verse four, uh, Jesus got up from supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel, towel with which he was girded. This was shocking to the disciples. Please know this. This was shocking to the disciples. Hey, Jesus and his disciples, they, were, they just arrived from being on a long, dusty road from Bethany. And their feet were protected by sandals, but it was exposed to sand and dust and, and all other kind of things that their feet would get dirty. And it was customary for the host home to provide a house servant or to provide a, a slave to wash the feet of his guests as they came into his house. And the washing of the feet was normal. It was normal. It was a custom. It was normal to be done by a servant. But here in this upper room, there was no servant. The servant wasn't there. One of the disciples should have washed their feet, right? You would think after all this time being with Jesus, after all this time of being with their Lord, all the things they have learned, one of them will surely wash everyone's feet. But none were willing. These men, they were too proud to stoop this low. They were too proud to serve in this way. We know as they entered the upper room, Luke's gospel says that they were arguing about who would be the greatest, who would be the best among them. They were arguing about that. So as they entered this upper room, this argument continued. One of them should have volunteered for this role. One of them should have stepped up for this role, but they were intent only about being great. They were concerned with only about being great, not about serving. That's what's on their mind. Each disciple was hoping that someone else among them would serve, but none would. No one stirred. And the silence was overwhelming. Uh, The silence was awkward. The stillness was awkward. They knew it had to be done as a custom, and no one did it. And it's in this midst of such pride and such arrogance that Jesus assumed the role of a servant to them. He who knew the Father had given 
all things to his hands. He who knew that he came forth from God as God. He who knew that he was going back to God to be enthroned at his right hand. He knew all of this, and yet he got up to serve. He got up to serve. The disciples had already taken their place around the table. The, the food was already table on the table. Everything was already set. Everything was ready to begin, but no one offered to perform the duty of the servant. No one offered. The water pitcher was in plain sight. Uh, the towel was in plain sight. Uh, the basin was in plain sight, yet no one moved an inch but Jesus, but Jesus. This is the a picture of his entire earthly ministry. And Matthew 20, 28 says this, the son of man came to be served, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, Hebrews 2, 9, he, Jesus was made up, was made low for a little while, lower than angels. Second Corinthians, Paul says, though, though that he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became more, uh, poor. In other words, as Jesus rose from supper, we see pictured here that he rose from the throne of majesty. He rose from the throne of majesty. As Jesus laid aside his garment, even so he laid aside his glory. As Jesus girded himself with a towel, even so he girded himself with the appearance of a bond servant. As Jesus poured the water to a basin, even so he would pour out his blood on the cross in a few hours. As Jesus washed their feet, even so he would wash away their sins for all those who believed. This is a picture of who Jesus is. It's the story of a, a dramatic story of what Jesus came to do. He came to serve. He came to serve. And as he washed the disciples' feet, there was silence. And there was an awkwardness. No one said a word until he got to Peter. Look at verse six. So he, Jesus, came to Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Peter was stunned. He, he was perplexed. Uh, he felt uneasy about this. Why are you washing my feet? Uh, this doesn't make any sense to Peter. Why are you doing this? In Peter's mind, uh, being in charge meant others serve you. He really thought being in charge that others serve you. Great people did not serve uh, anyone. They were being served and definitely not the service of washing someone's feet. Look at verse seven, Jesus answers this way. He answered and said to him, what I do, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And as we, see, as we see later, Jesus was giving his disciples an example to follow. He was given a pattern to follow. And Peter failed on seeing what Jesus was doing. He failed to see the picture. He failed to see the spiritual cleansing in it at this moment. The word hereafter is interesting. What Jesus is saying is that after my death, after my resurrection, and after my ascension, and after I send the Holy Spirit, the meaning of my entire work will become clear to you. Hereafter, it'll become clear to you. And verse eight, it continues, Peter said to him, never say you wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Uh, Peter, at this point, now he's being defiant. 
He's kind of talking back to Jesus. And he's like, well, what are you doing? And this is common for Peter sometimes to, to correct the Lord, to correct Jesus. And what he's saying here is a protest. Jesus, by no means you shall ever wash my feet. By no means you shall ever do this. I mean, you are master. You are a teacher. You are our Lord. You shouldn't be doing this. He, he, Peter was to, to have Jesus wash his feet was humbling, but he did not recognize that. It was too humble for Jesus to do this. And Peter did not understand what was going on. He did not understand what Jesus was doing. And if Jesus responds, if I don't cleanse you of daily sin, if I don't wash you, if I don't cleanse you of daily sin, I have no communion with you. And it keeps going. Verse nine, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter now swings from really one shrink to another from not foot washing. This time he wants a bath. Jesus, go ahead, just dump it on me. Give me the whole thing. This is what I need. Give me the whole thing. Jesus said to him, verse 10, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but it's completely clean and you are clean. What Jesus is preparing here is so beautiful. He's preparing that the cleansing of salvation is a bath. When you are saved, when you finally come to Christ and you repent of your sins and you come to him by faith, you are bathed. You are fully washed. You are clean. And when he compares to washing his feet, what he's saying is you need daily forgiveness. You need to be cleaned. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, he summarizes this very well. He, He says this, the image involved is of an Oriental who would bathe completely before going to another person's home for dinner. On the way, because he would be shod in sandals and because the streets would be dirty, his feet would be contaminated. And when he arrived at a friend's home, his feet would need to be washed, not his whole body. In a parallel way, those who are Christ are totally justified men and women, but they do need constant cleansing from their repeated defilement by sin in order to have the fellowship they have with the Father and the Son. Jesus is telling Peter that he does not need to be born again and again and again and again and again. To be born once is enough. Nevertheless, as regenerated people, as Christians, we do need to come to Christ for daily cleansing. We do need to come to Christ for daily cleansing. When Jesus washes you in regeneration, by the moment you are saved, you are clean. But as you travel this sin-tainted, self-centered, Satan-infiltrated world, your feet get dirty. Your feet get dirty, but you do not lose your salvation. You just need your feet washed. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the end of verse 10, Jesus says this, Jesus says, but not all of you are clean. Verse 11, for he knew the one who's betraying him, Judas. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. What Jesus is saying is not all of you are clean. Not all of you are bathed. Not all of you are born again. It's reference is clearly Judas, Judas, the one who would betray him. So, so what's happening here? What, what's the picture? What, what's, what's, what's the point of this? 
unless Jesus humbles himself as a servant, unless Jesus selflessly offers his life in Peter's life, in the disciples' life, they would have no ability to follow him. They have no ability to commune with him. His ultimate act of humble service upholds all the acts of Christian ministry. His one act, his ultimate act of humble service upholds everything that we do. His life was a life of servanthood. And because of that, what he did, the ultimate act, dying on the cross, causes us to serve him. Because of that, he was showing them that he came not to be served, but to serve. So what's the lesson here? The model for servanthood is Jesus. The model of servanthood is Jesus. Jesus was born to serve. Jesus served with humility. Jesus served with, uh, he, Jesus served sacrificially. Jesus served lovingly. Jesus served patiently. Jesus served graciously. He is the perfect model for servanthood, which begs for the question, how are you doing? How do you match up with the model? How do you match up with Jesus? Do you serve with humility? Do you serve patiently? Do you serve graciously? Do you serve lovingly? Do you serve like Jesus? How do you match up? How are you doing? He is the model that you are to follow. He is the servant that you want to be like. He was the greatest servant who ever lived. And if we were to walk in a manner that is worthy to walk, we are to serve as he served. We are to serve as he served. He is the model for servanthood. Well, third and finally, quickly, taking notes, we've seen the motivation, we've seen the model. Let's look at the mandate, the mandate. Look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you, do you know what I've done to you? Uh, Jesus, now he has room, resumed his seat back at the table. He's back at the head of the table. Do you understand? Do you get what I'm doing? Do you know what I'm doing? It's, it's a rhetorical question. They, they didn't understand. They, they didn't know. So he explains, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. Jesus is saying, so I am your teacher. So I will now explain to you what I'm doing so that you will understand it. I am your Lord. That means I have authority to tell you what to do. And he says in verse 14, if I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that we are to start some sacrament to wash people's feet? No, that's not what he's saying. We are not to start institute some new sacrament. It's not at all. He, he keeps going. Look at verse 15. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. This has nothing to do with foot washing. What Jesus is talking about is the need for God's people to take a servant's role. The need for you and I to take a servant's role and to do it with all humility, to do it with sacrificial love. This act was a powerful lesson in serving. 
It's a powerful act in servanthood. And the disciples were missing the point. They were willing to fight and, and to nitpick and argue about who is the greatest, but no one wanted the towel. They didn't know what was going on. Jesus is telling them, if your master is taking a servant's role, so should you. If I'm taking a servant's role, so should you. It's to live with this question on your lips. Is there anything that I can do for you? It's to live that on your heart. Is there anything that I can do for you? Is this, is that question on your lips? Does that question summarize your life, a life of a servant? Are you willing to serve? Are you willing to lay down your life to serve one another? The the world is not big on the idea of servanthood, is it? It's not big on serving. It views those who who have others to serve themselves and get great, satisfaction. But we're not to follow the example of the world. We are to follow the example of Jesus. Do do you follow, the question must be asked, do you follow the world example of servanthood to get, to get, to get, or do you follow Jesus, which is to give, to give, to give? That's who we are to follow. I remember watching a family member growing up she, she would lay a pattern out and then she would cut the material to fit the pattern. And then she would sew the garment on the basis of the pattern. And she would sew that garment on the basis of a pattern. And washing the disciples' feet, Jesus laid down a, a pattern of what it means to be like him. To be like Jesus is to be a servant, to be a servant. Uh, our pastor, our pastor, Pastor John, he gave a message uh, two weeks ago, I think, on walking worthy. And if you haven't listened to it, I, I encourage you to go back and do that. On walking worthy, to, to walk in alignment of who we say we are. You are not walking worthy if you are not serving others. You are not walking worthy if you are not ser- serving others humbly. You're not walking worthy if you're not serving serving others self-sacrificially. You're not walking worthy if you're not serving others lovingly. If you are to walk worthy, you are to walk like he walked, to walk like our Lord walked. Verse 16, keep going. We're at the end. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is the one who's uh, sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is the master, and we are the servants. He is the master, we are the servants. He, he is the one who sends, and we are his messengers. Yet he still serves us, right? He serves us with humility and love. He serves us with humility and love. He is the master, we are the servants. Do you think that you're better than Jesus? Do you think that you are better than he is? He is Lord. He is the master. And we are just his servants. 
To refuse to serve is to exalt yourself above him. It's to exalt yourself above him. But to serve is to descend into greatness. To serve is to descend into greatness. Just think about it. The servant desires to be like the master. Your desire, I hope, is to be like Jesus. It's to become more and more like Jesus. Obey, working out your sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. And the, so the highest rank in the power structure of the kingdom is that of a servant. The highest rank of that of the kingdom is to be that of a servant. That of a servant. It was when 18, 18, 1878, uh, the Salva, Salvation Army began. And men all over the world began to enlist. A minister by the name of Bringle, he enlisted with the dreams of greatness. He turned down uh, from a fine pastorate to join the Salvation Army. But at first, he accepted his services reluctantly with, with a grudge. He didn't like it. He was always complaining. And his boss told him this, you've been working, you've been your own boss too long. So to instill humility into him, he sent him to work cleaning the boots of other, other trainees. And Bringle asked himself this, have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to black seven boots? Then as a vision, he said he saw Jesus bending over the feet of rough, unlettered fishermen. And he whispered this, Lord, you wash their feet. I will black their boots. I want to challenge you with this tonight. If Jesus washed feet, you can serve. If Jesus washed feet, you can serve. If Jesus washed feet, you can park cars on Sunday morning. If Jesus washed feet, you can greet worshipers and pass out bulletins. If Jesus washed feet, you can serve for the children in daycare. If Jesus washed feet, you can visit the elderly in their homes. If Jesus washed feet, you can go out and evangelize. If Jesus washed feet, you can help serve in foundation. If Jesus washed feet, you can serve. You can serve. The bottom line is this. If Jesus washed feet, you should have a willing heart to do anything. You should have a willing heart to do anything. At any moment, at any moment to do anything, to serve sacrificially. And finally, verse 17, we'll wrap it up. Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you know this, the blessing is not in merely knowing the truth, it is what you do with the truth that you know. It's what you do with it. Christian obedience comes through obedient service. So the mandate, what's the lesson we learn here? The mandate of servanthood is unavoidable. It is unavoidable. It's inescapable. It's not a choice. Serving is not a choice. It's unavoidable. We are to serve like our Lord. And when you serve, you will be blessed. You will be happy. You will be satisfied. You will be fulfilled. You will be fortunate. You will be blessed. This text reveals one essential way that we can obey God and receive a blessing, which is following the example of his son. Following the example of his son. He does not call us to a life of leisure. 
He calls us to a life of labor, of labor. We are sent to be servants. You are sent to be servants and to be witnesses of him in this world. That's what you are sent to do. It is our assignment, just as it was, just as it was our Lord's assignment to serve. There was a pastor once that dreamed that he went to heaven and he walked around the new Jerusalem. And in his wanderings, he came upon a museum. And he went in and the attendant showed him around. Uh, There were many things that were greatly used by God on the earth. Uh, There was the rod that Moses used to part the Red Sea. Uh, There was a hammer that was used by Noah to build the ark. There was a widow's coins put into the treasury. Uh, There was a swaddling cloth that was used to wrap baby Jesus. There was three nails and a few thorns from the cross. There was a sponge, one dipped in the vinegar that our Lord tastes. And the pastor whispered to the attendant, he said, do you have a towel and a basin among your collection? The attendant replied, oh, no, not here. You see, they are in constant use. They are in constant use. You are called to serve in the humility of love like Jesus. Follow his example. How do you do this? We have the motivation of servanthood, which is love. We follow the model of servanthood, which is Jesus. And we know the mandate of servanthood, which is unavoidable. This is love on its knees. This is what we're called to do. And let's do it. Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for saving us. Lord, the challenge tonight is to serve, to serve as you did. Lord, we couldn't do this without the gospel. Lord, for those of us in the room who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you just pry their hearts open. Let them see the beauty of your love. And friend, if you're here tonight and if you don't know Jesus, I pray that you deny yourself, that you repent of your sins and you come to him in faith and give your life to him. For those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to serve you. Lord, wash us from sin. Any sin in our lives that needs to be brought to the surface, Lord, bring those to the surface. Wash us daily, cleanse us. Lord, help us follow your example. You came to serve. Your service was the ultimate act of service, dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, may that love stir in our hearts to serve one another. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.